The text for this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 through 23. 1 Samuel 16, 14 through 23. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden, and bread, and a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took his lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I, I just ask that you would help me now open up your word, that your word would work in our lives in ways that would change us for your glory, that we would be salt, Lord, in a world that is dark, that we would be light, that we would be able to love the those around us that don't know You. Father, I pray that You would make us more like David and more like Christ. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the South Dakota... Constitution was written in 1889. And here's the preamble uh, for the Constitution, for the South Dakota Constitution. It says, We the people of South Dakota, grateful to Almighty God for our civil liberties, religious liberties, in order to form a more perfect and independent government, establish justice, ensure tranquility, provide the common defense, promote the general welfare, and preserve ourselves and to our prosperity the blessings of liberty, do ordain and establish this constitution for the state of South Dakota. It's amazing. It begins with grateful to God Almighty, for things like civil and religious liberties, 
for government, establish justice, ensure tranquility, provide for common defense, the general welfare of, of people. I read through probably 25 of these preambles. All these constitutions of the United States of America have something similar to ours. In light of who God is, this state is going to organize itself to bless the society. To, in a sense, preserve the goodness of society. You know, we always talk, is our nation a Christian nation? And in one sense, the answer is no, it's not. It's a government based on Christian principles. But is it based on Christian principles for the good of others? Has Christianity so influenced our nation and our state for the good of others? The answer is definitely. You, you look at the original documents, you go far back in to the beginning of the United States of America, you look at the education, it's rooted on Christian principles. You look at hospitals, you look at education, you look at giving to the poor. This came from the fruit of Christianity. Now the reality is, is in our country, Christians are not the most popular people around. We're not appreciated for all the good our parents and grandparents and and Christians that have gone before us have brought to this nation, to the place where we live. And my question is, how ought we to respond? Ought we to look to the society around us and be angry and say, you ought to appreciate us. You ought to recognize all these good things that you inherit because of Christian Christian principles. You ought to appreciate us. Should we get bitter? Should we view them as the enemy? I think today's text is really practical. We look at David's life. We see how God's going to use him to bless the nation of Israel, to bless believers, and to even bless his enemies and to be a sense of preservation for even Saul, God's rejected servant. And so the main charge I want to give you is this. Serve the Lord by serving the undeserving around you for His glory. You and I aren't King of Israel but we are a part of a great kingdom. We're called ambassadors for Christ. And I believe God calls us to be like our Master. And David was this picture a thousand years before Christ of a different sort of king that was going to come. So basically, in your notes there, as I read through this text, now we went through this last week, 
uh, this text last week, the second half of the sermon, but we kind of ran out of time. And so I wanted to go back and, and look at these verses in greater detail because big theological questions come out of them. One of them is this, if the Spirit can leave Saul, then can you lose your salvation? Can the Holy Spirit leave you if we're told that in a sense, God pulled His Spirit from Saul and gave him a harmful spirit. Second question we're going to ask or that comes up when looking at this text, did God really send an evil spirit? I thought only good came from God. This is a question that might come up. And the third theological question, what does God sovereignly, or why does God sovereignly ordain David to comfort Saul from this harmful spirit? If God takes His Spirit from Saul, gives him a harmful spirit for judgment, why does God sovereignly raise up David to help Saul deal with the harmful spirit? I think that's a good question to ask. Why is God working in the way He's working. And then there's going to be three application questions that I think we all ought to ask ourselves in light of this. What has God chosen and empowered you for? God gave Saul his spirit to be king. He gave David his spirit to be king. Well, you Christian, what is He called you for? What has He empowered you for? What has He given His Spirit to you for? Second, what does godly service look like for David? We're going to look at His service and for you. And thirdly, how does God's restraining and saving grace flow through your life? So let's begin by looking at verse 14. 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 14. Let's read verse 13 first here, just so we see this transition. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So we see the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon David. This is the big transition in Israel's kingship from Saul to David. The next many chapters is going to be Saul and David uh, in each other's lives. One of them has the Spirit of God. One of them, the Spirit of God is left. Look at verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So you just couldn't see a bigger contrast. We got to see Saul working on behalf of Israel with the Spirit of God helping him, defeating some of their enemies. But then when Saul began to stop listening to the prophet, to God's Word, and do things his own way, God pulls His Spirit and gives it to David. David's going to be the main character 
from here on out in First and Second Samuel. And from the very beginning, we get to see character traits. We get to see a picture of a different type of king. <clears throat> and so let's deal with theological question number one. If the Spirit can leave you are if the spirit can leave Saul then can you lose your salvation look at what it says verse 14 now the spirit of the lord departed from Saul a harmful spirit from the lord tormented him the answer to this question obviously is no we cannot lose our salvation and the spirit of the lord will never leave a Christian. So how can this be if the Spirit came upon Saul and he lost it? Well, the answer is that when the Spirit rushed upon Saul, the Spirit didn't bring regeneration. That's a fancy word for the new birth. He didn't bring about saving faith in God the same way it does for New Testament Christians. In the Old Covenant, the Spirit of the Lord worked upon people and temporarily, it's even said, comes, can come into someone, a special leader in Israel, but not generally to the everyone in Israel, all the believers in Israel. If you wanted to be close to God in Israel, you got close to the temple where the Spirit of God dwelt. You got close to the people of, of Israel. If you were a foreigner, you wanted to follow the true and living God, well, you needed to get information from the people of God you needed to worship God the way the God of Israel called for you to worship. In the new birth, the Spirit of God is, enters into us. This is the newness of the new covenant. This is what makes the new covenant better than the old covenant. This is why in the Old Testament, uh, for example, in Ezekiel 36, we read about this new birth where He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a, a heart of flesh and I'll put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and to be careful to obey My rules. So Ezekiel's looking forward to a day when the Spirit of God will be inside the people of God permanently and forever. This is why Jesus said in John 37, we read this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The one who believes in me, Jesus says, 
will never thirst. Out of Him will come streams of living water. What's He talking about? Here's what, he, here's what it says, verse 39. Now this He said about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the Spirit wasn't yet flowing out of people the way it's going to be because Jesus wasn't yet glorified. Then in John 14.16, He says this, And I'll ask the Father, and He'll give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. Right now, the Spirit of God dwells with you, but there's going to be a day when the Spirit dwells in you. And as you know, what happens is after Jesus dies on the cross and is raised again, and the few believers are gathered at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes upon Christians and then every believer after that has the Spirit of God living in them. It can never be taken from them. But when David goes on to commit adultery with Bathsheba, he did not have the same confidence. David's prayer is that, Lord, don't take Your Spirit from me. He saw it happen to Saul. And so when we're reading about the Spirit rushing upon David, this is the Spirit not to bring new life in the form of regeneration, but to give the king the ability to lead his people. That's why the Spirit was given to Saul, and that's why the Spirit comes upon David. <clears throat> and the second question, theological question that I think arises out of this first verse is the second part of this verse that says, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. If you, if you have a different translation, NASB, NIV, King James Version, it's going to say, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Which raises the question, can God send evil, harmful spirits upon people? I thought God only brings good to people. You know, this is a good question to ask. And I want to answer it in a couple ways. First of all, I'll tell you right out, I don't think, I think the ESV translates this the best, harmful spirit. I don't think we're supposed to see this as a demon being sent to uh, Saul, but rather an angel of judgment that brings harm upon Saul for disobeying him. But let's others think, no, this is in fact an evil spirit. Well, do, do we even have a category for this? 
Remember Job when the Lord says, have you ever considered My servant Job to Satan? Satan comes to speak with God and then Satan torments Job and afflicts him only as much as the Lord allows. And in Job 2.10, Job says this, He says this to his wife when his wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? He says, you speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And then in Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7, we read this about God. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we're given a God who is sovereign over the blessing and the tornado. The wipes out a town. Amos 3.6 Is the trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And remember Paul with the thorn in his flesh? Here's what he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, so he got to see heaven. He said, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So you have Paul saying that the Lord sovereignly through a messenger of Satan, is keeping Paul from becoming conceited and keeping him Christ-like. So, if it means an evil spirit was sent to Saul in the fact that it was a demon, we even have categories in Scripture where God is sovereign even over calamity and all these things. God doesn't stand behind evil the way He stands behind good. Any good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. We're supposed to see it as as first-person action flowing out of His goodness. God is sovereign over what you could say second-causal actions where He even takes evil people's actions and demonic rebellion and in His sovereign plan works that for good when He Himself is not evil and it doesn't flow right from His character. These are difficult things to comprehend, but this is how the Scripture gives it to us. But I'm here to tell you that this is good news. Because if God is not sovereign over Satan and over evil, and He does not even work these things 
for our good, then you can't go to bed at night and rest in peace. But God can organize. God can ordain events where evil people kill His Son and have it be His plan for all eternity to save you and I. That's the kind of God we have. But here, I believe what we're supposed to see here is God sends a messenger to judge, an angel to judge Saul for uh, not obeying and, and really bringing Israel down, putting Israel, God's people, in jeopardy. So let's ask the question, what has God chosen and empowered you for? As a Christian, He's given you the Spirit of God to live inside of you. Not to be king, but what for? We see Saul use the Spirit of God to his advantage sometimes, but then to go on his own road. And we, I think, with the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, often have to admit we like to trudge our own path, walk in the flesh rather than with the Spirit. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 5.14. I think this is one of the clearest places we can answer the question, what has God chosen me for? What has God empowered me to do? Second Corinthians 5.14. Here's what Paul says. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, here's the first purpose, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. One of the reasons Jesus died for you is that you could die to yourself. You would quit living selfish lives where you're king of your life. You do whatever you want. You're selfish. But He died for you so that you can die to you and become a servant of the King. What you were created for. You're made to be a warrior. To be at war not with your neighbors, not with non-Christians, but with your own selfishness in your heart which we're all born with as fallen sons and daughters of Adam. So that's the first thing. But then we read on and it says this, from now on therefore, we, are, we no longer are we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. And here's your job description. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, here's your job description title. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. Where's the prophets now? Where's the ones speaking God's words now. Here's God's plan sitting right before me. You all speaking on God's behalf to a world that may hate you, may hate your principles, may hate your God, but you're called not to be a spirit of judgment on the world, but to be ambassadors for Christ. To bring the good news that God's righteousness can be given to sinners. That's what we're called to be. Warriors against our own flesh and ambassadors for Christ. That's the job description. That's why God gave you His Spirit to live inside you and to live inside me. That's the course set. Personal sanctification, which means a lot of painful heart work, dying to self so that I can love others, and bringing the good news to a lost world. Well, what does this sort of service look like as ambassadors? What does it look like to be a servant of God? Look at verse 15. Verses 15 through 18. What does it look like in David's life here? So the harmful spirits come upon Saul, and Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. So somehow his his servants sensed this is a spiritual oppression from God. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So this is some sort of stringed instrument. It might not be as big as the pictures we see of David playing the harp. But they say, Here's what we need to do. Here's what you need to do, Master. Let us find someone who can play this. And when the harmful spirit is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well 
and bring him to me. I love this. Look at verse 18. And one of the men answered. Just look at the hand of God here. God secretly and privately has already anointed David to be the new king. Nobody knows this except Jesse and the few people that were at the sacrifice. And one of his servants says, Behold, I've seen the son of Je- or a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Isn't this unbelievable? God chooses David, and now Saul is going to choose David because one servant says, you know what? I saw a young man who's good at playing. You know, why don't, why don't you pick him? And in God's providence, David gets to come into the king's court and he gets to serve the king. This is a king, in a sense, that God is raising up. He gets to see what happens behind the scenes as king. He gets to watch Saul make mistakes. He gets to look at one who's ruling in front of him and God sovereignly brings him in to the kingship before he's recognized as king. And it's interesting what the servant says. A man of valor. A man of strength. This is a young man who's courageous. He's not afraid. I don't know if the stories we're going to find out next chapter, he's killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands. This is a young man whose brothers are always at war with the Philistines. He's grown up in a war situation. Some commentators say the family must have been a family of war because David hasn't slayed Goliath yet. But what they, this young man, or what this servant saw in David, is this is a courageous man of valor, man of war, prudent in speech. David was good with words. Proverbs 21-23 says, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. So the picture that we begin to get is a courageous young man who's not afraid of battle. He's careful with what comes out of his mouth. He uses his words for good. A man of good presence probably means a man of good looks. So he just has a presence about him. Now, we can't necessarily just this doesn't mean we go worry about our outward appearance so we can be like David. This, he just happened to be blessed to be, have good looks. But the most important thing in this list is the last one. And it becomes the theme all throughout the rest of this book. The Lord is with him. You see, we get to see two kings side by side. Saul, who doesn't have the Spirit of God, and David. And we get to see the train wreck 
of the one who is not trusting in the Lord, but has to find his own way. And so we see the character of this young man. And then look at verse 19. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David to his, or by David his son to Saul. You would never come to the king without some sort of gift. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. Now Saul would have had more than one armor bearer, but he became one of them. And we see what we know is going to be David's enemy in the world's perspective. David doesn't view him that way. Even when Saul tries to kill David in the future chapters, how does David see him? God's king. God has him in there. You see, we start to get an example from David. Who raises up kings? Who puts people in power? Does David agree with how Saul's leading the nation? No. But there's one he sees so clearly, and that is the Lord. And all throughout these next chapters, we're going to see David protecting the king of Israel that's trying to kill him because his hope is in God and in God's sovereignty and in God's plan. It could never be said that David tried to go steal the kingship from Saul. The only thing you could ever say is God put David in there. David didn't scheme to get it. God, a man who's trusting in God, was raised up to king. It says Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. Now this doesn't mean he stayed with Saul from this point on because when we get to David and Goliath, he's still a shepherd in a field. And so he's serving Saul but still living at home. We know that because in chapter 18, verse 2, Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So we're not yet full-time service for the king, but he is one of his servants. And so as the harmful spirit of the Lord torments Saul, he must have been like someone who's going mentally crazy. You know, the how disheartening would this be when you're Saul's servants and here the king of Israel is acting in crazy ways. And they're looking for a way. How can we help him? And by God's grace, He sends him David to play music. I don't know that David ever played a song that wasn't to the Lord. I mean, everything, all evidence we have of David's psalms was worship, praise to the Lord. When he slays Goliath in the next chapter, he does it with his pitcher, with the Lord clearly seen in front of him. 
But here we even see the grace of God. Because we, Saul gets to experience comfort from oppression through a man of God. God wants to use you that way too. He wants you to be a preserving agent in your neighborhood, in your workplace. All your co-workers might not get saved, but because you're there, that place ought to be brighter. The attitude that comes from you ought to bless those around you, even if they don't appreciate the blessing. This is what Christianity has always been in a dark world. Whether it was welcomed or not, Christianity, yes, speaks judgment to anyone who won't receive Christ, but even in that, even though Christians will tell the truth, it's going to be with love and service and self-sacrifice is how those relationships ought to be. So we see restraining grace in David's life. And then look at verse 23. Whenever the harmful spirit from God is upon Saul, David took the lyre, played it in his hands, so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed. The last theological question I asked when I was reading this is, so why would God do it this way? And I think the answer is, is David is a picture. A thousand years later, there's going to be a king who's different. There's going to be a king who doesn't do things the same way. You remember way back in chapter 8 when Israel said, give us a king like the nations. Here's what Samuel said. So Samuel told all the words uh, of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and your, your sons and your daughters, your fields, your vineyards, a tenth of your grain, your male servants, your female servants, your donkeys. In that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. But this is a different type of king who is even serving his enemies. It's a different type of king who comes and doesn't do what every other king would do in the same way. It's a picture looking forward. It's a humble king. It's a king who's there to bless and to serve. And a thousand years later, another king came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey which represented humility. And they were saying, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And the world doesn't know what to do with this kind of king who doesn't look the part He's riding in on a donkey. And this is the king that, as we just read, Pilate says, you want me to kill your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. 
What an empty place Israel had become. The spiritual leader said, our only king is Caesar. And they reject this king. And I can't help but think about the Lord that we were given. Listen, listen, just listen to this. But God shows His love for us and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He shows His love for you. He loved you when you weren't lovable. Ephesians 2.5 Even when you were dead in your trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the best news in the world. Because we can't fool ourselves. All of us come in here with an overwhelming weight of guilt and sin that we know is in our hearts. God knows your heart. But the good news is, is God showed His love not to those who were lovable, but to those who were broken and sinful and had no hope. You see, I relate more to Saul who screws up even though the Lord blesses me. But one comes like David. What did did David learn that Saul never learned? Saul liked David because he could make his day a little better, but he never repented. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he begs that the Lord would blot away his sin and forgive him for his sin, and he repents. Saul was satisfied with just my life going a little better. You come in here today broken and sinful, whether you know it or not. Just think, God knows all of your thoughts. He knows not only your deeds, but He knows your thoughts. But God, listen to Paul to Timothy, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful. How did He do that? Appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Why did God choose me? Because I was a blasphemer, an insolent opponent, a persecutor, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord flowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now hear this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. There's only one type of person here that can be helped by God. And that's the one who recognizes their sin and that they can't do it on their own, falls down, confesses that sin, repents, and looks to Christ as their only hope that Christ can take away their sin. 
Here's David's cry, Psalm 51.9. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from Your presence. Take not Your Spirit from me. This is the prayer of the repentant. And my last question is this. If you've received that grace and mercy because you realize you're a sinner, how does that then overflow to grace to others? To those who are your enemies, who don't like your faith, they've made you an enemy, you were saved when you were an enemy. We're ambassadors of reconciliation to God so that people can be brought near to the Lord. My prayer is, as this world turns more against us as Christians, the more we love, the more we serve, the more we tell the truth about the Gospel, that they need this King who's different than any other king. He's the Son of God. And He said, I came into this world not to be served, but to serve and give My life as a ransom for many. My prayer is that all of us would be this type of Christian. Someone who views the world around as saying, how can I serve even if it's Saul? Even if they're throwing spears at me, I'm going to pray for my enemies. I'm going to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. Father, will You help us be like this? None of us can be changed into this apart from Your Spirit living in us, apart from Your Spirit helping us be warriors to fight our own selfishness in our own hearts. God, I pray that we would recognize Your grace. Right now, Lord, I pray people here who maybe came in here with guilt, You would let them know that it's a trustworthy statement. You came to save sinners. Lord, that they would trust You. That they would recognize they can't be good enough. And that they would repent and find their hope in You. Lord, thank You for this wonderful Gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.